Good morning. It's been a fun Sunday so far. Let's keep going. Like Jeff said, we're starting uh, continue, continuing our series on Ephesians. We're finishing up chapter 4 today in uh, our, our series. And so just as a, a reminder for you, uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a city named Ephesus in it's a port city in what's now called Turkey. Large city made of trade and commerce uh, and religion, too. They worship the Greek goddess of Artemis. There are places of worship, art, huge amphitheater there. And as we've talked about, the city was primarily Gentile or non-Jewish people, although there was a significant Jewish population among the nearly 250,000 people who were a part of the city. Now, this is the eighth message in our series. We've only got three more after this one as we uh, lead up to Thanksgiving. Last week, we started looking at the more kind of application-focused part of the letter. Paul is very theological-heavy early on, and now he's getting into the application. Like, what are we going to do with that first half of the letter in our lives? And so we're going to take the same path. We're just kind of pretty application-heavy today and what we can do with what we learned early on. And so we're going to pick up in verse 17 and uh, read through 17 through 19 to start it off. All right, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. So Paul starts this letter by telling the readers that they, they must no longer live as the Gentiles do. They're supposed to live the life that is worthy of the calling that they've received. We saw that early on in the chapter, which they would know about this life because this is how they used to be. They, I mean, they, they were Gentiles before they became Christians and everything. This is how they used to live before they were saved. And remember from Ephesians 2, chapter 1, it's, Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's not work in those who are disobedient. So because of that, Paul's giving them this negative command. He's like, don't live as the Gentiles do. For some reason, it keeps thinking I'm typing and wants to undo it, which is not helping. <laughs> um, but you got this negative command here, uh, you know, to, to no longer live as the Gentiles do. And a lot of times I think that we, when somebody tells us that you can't do something, we, we are like, you want to bet? <laughs> I can do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so negative commands are kind of tough for us, but negative commands have been a part of what God has done since the very beginning. I mean, you think about in the Garden of Eden, God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or if you look at the Ten Commandments, that's a whole list of negative commands. It's like, don't do this, don't do that. Um, you know, you shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. So, so we really shouldn't be afraid of negative commands. They're not a bad thing. Um, in this one, he's saying something like, you know, don't live like you used to. Don't, don't live like the Gentiles currently live. And what's the problem with how they live? Well, there's four things that Paul talks about. He says, first, there is a futility of their thinking. When believers trust in Christ, their, their thinking starts to become different than the rest of the world. It, it's different because for the rest of the world, sin becomes something that, you know, is, is you're trying to find satisfaction in. 
you're, you're trying to chase after something. And you're looking for satisfaction in it, but you're not going to be able to find it. They're chasing pleasures that they're not going to find satisfaction in. It's kind of like empty calories, you know, when you're, when you're eating. You know, it, it tastes good for a little bit, but ultimately it's very bad for you. Um, and, and I would know <laughs> because that's my diet. <laughs> but in their minds, they've talked themselves into these things being good for them. And, and, or, or they think it's what's best for them when it's really not. Ultimately, they're going to find out, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes did, that, you know, it's meaningless. You can chase after all these things, but ultimately they're going to be meaningless on their own. But with God, you can find true satisfaction. The second thing, which is found in verse 18, is that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. J. Vernon McGee writes that this means that the lost man has lost his perception of moral values. People think they're enlightened because they don't rely on what they might call, you know, this ancient man-made book of mythology and the non-existent deity uh, that this book talks about. But instead, they've got philosophy, they've got science that lead the way. Those things in of themselves aren't terrible things, but they think that they're wise. Now, Romans one twenty two in a letter that Paul writes, he says, although they claim to be wise, they became fools because their minds have been darkened by this world. They've been darkened by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, the third thing that Paul talks about in verse 18 is saying that they've been separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. When you're dead in your transgression and your sin, your heart hardens. And it, it becomes difficult to get any kind of truth in it. Sin becomes a controlling factor, and our hope is that the unbeliever would fight to get out of that. But when their hearts are hardened, they get to become slaves to that sin unable to break free. And in many cases, they're even unwilling to, to even try to break free from it. They become ignorant of the truth of the gospel. Finally, Paul says in verse 19 that they've lost all sensitivity and have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. So they've gotten to the point where they've lost all sensitivity, all kinds of sensitivity of wrongdoing. They've become callous. You know, they say things like, that's oh, not that bad, Right? Um, to whatever sin you're going to throw at them. You know, well, it's not that bad. It's the way the rest of the world does it, so why, why is it not okay? But we're never satisfied with that. As McGee writes, he says, men in sin are never satisfied with sin. They become abandoned to sin. And that's what Paul describes in Romans 1, verses 1, uh, 21 through 25, where he says, for although they knew God, they never glorified him, as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to this, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised Amen. 
You must not live as the Gentiles do. Paul's writing this. Paul's, it's, it's a specific letter to a specific people in time, right? He's writing this to the Ephesians in the first century. Man, does it not seem like we could take this passage out and put it in today's world and say, well, you know what? He's not writing to the Ephesians. He's writing to the Americans. And you get the same thing. You get the same thing. Let me read it to you just one more time. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. I mean, that talks about our culture today. Like, a lot of times, we, don't, we, we want to keep things in their culture and we want to apply the principles. And it's, we want to keep how it's written in the Bible to its cultural context and then we apply the principles behind it. This one, it's just like, yeah, I think we can just apply this. This is pretty good. Don't live like this. He's, what he's writing rings so true today. And we've got to pay close attention, just not to the prohi- prohibitions that uh, not to live like the rest of the world. But really, we've got to look to the instruction of what we can do moving forward. And so we continue in verse 20. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When the churches in Ephesus were planted, you know, they weren't taught to live like the rest of the world. They weren't, Paul wasn't saying, you know what, yeah, just go ahead and do what all the other Ephesians are doing. It'll be fine. It'll work out. You know, God's forgiven you for your sin. No problem. No problem. But they were to be different. They were to change. Think about it when you take a shower. Like, you get home, say you're one of those people who takes a shower in the evening. I'm not one of those. I take it in the morning. Big debate on that. I don't know. Anyway, say you're you're one of those that takes it in the evening. You get home. You got all your dirty clothes. You take all those off. You go take a shower. Get yourself cleaned up. When you get out of the shower, you are not going to put those dirty clothes back on, right? Right. That would be gross. That would be gross. But why aren't you doing that? Because it's negating the point of taking a shower. You're getting yourself clean. And so you don't want to, you, you want the outside to kind of match what the inside is. It's the same thing when you're a Christian. God is cleaning the inside. And so you want the outside to match what the inside looks like. So in this passage, Paul is saying that when the Ephesians heard about Christ and were taught in him, they were taught three things. First one was with regard to their former way of life, to take off the old self. Put off the old self. Take off those old, dirty clothes. That part has been corrupted by the deceitful desires of sin. And so you're putting this off, and and you can say you're dying to that old self, right? Now, the second thing is that they were taught to be made new in the attitude of their minds. So not only are we putting off the old, the sinful desires of our hearts and our minds, but now the Spirit is working in us to change us, change those desires, and make them new. Replacing the old, corrupted desires with godly desires. 
And the third thing is that they were taught to put on the new self, which was created to be like God in righteousness and in holiness. Christians are to put off the old and put on the new. There's a change. There's a transformation. Now, obviously, we don't do this on our own at all. It is in concert with the Lord. There's a question, though, kind of like when does this happen in the Christian life? Is it something that happens when salvation happens? Does it happen like when baptism, when you get baptized? Does it happen like every day of the Christian walk? And I think the answer to that is yeah. Like all of those, yes. It does happen at salvation. Like you were made into a new person. You were given a new identity at salvation. You've got that change of status. But it also happens throughout the Christian life as well. Like every day, we are to be putting off and putting on, putting off the old, putting on the new. Kyle Snell, uh, Klein Snodgrass writes, uh, putting off and putting on the dying or rising is the pattern by which Christians live. Because conversion, sanctification, is, it's a process. It's not something that's just like an immediate thing. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. He said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. How often? Daily. And follow me. Now we move to Paul's practical application of what this looks like in the life of the Christian. Verse 25 says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We're going to take each of these in turn. We're going to start with verse 25. Therefore, so because we talk about all these things, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for all members of one body. Basically, don't lie to each other. Seems pretty easy. Like you, you must put off falsehood now because as Christians, you know the truth. John writes in 1 John 2.21, uh, he says, I do not write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. No lie comes from the truth. The truth and lies, they are antithetical. They do not work together. Lying, also kind of prohibited in the, in the Ten Commandments, so you know it's a big one. Um, plus, John, in his gospel, quotes Jesus talking about Satan in this way. John eight forty four. he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I don't know about you. I don't really want to get lumped in with Satan. Like, that doesn't seem like a good thing. So we should speak truthfully to one another because we're all members of the body of Christ. Next, Paul talks about anger. Verse 26, he says, in your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anger is described by Warren Wearsby as an emotional arousal caused by something that displeases us. Like I've said, sometimes my golf game displeases me. (laughs) But sometimes it doesn't, so. (laughs) Right now, anger seems like it can come pretty easily to people. And if you're not sure about that, you want to test that out when you go home, go on the interstate and just cut somebody off. See how quickly they get angry with you. Uh, Because I'll bet it'll be pretty quickly. (laughs) But like a lot of things in life, anger in and of itself, that's not particularly sinful, right? Like we see God be angry. We see Jesus get angry, but they did it without sin. Now, granted, they're God, so... It gives them a leg up on us, I think. You know, it can be easy for us to, to fall into sin with anger because that's our nature. You know, we're not God. We don't see the whole picture of everything. We don't see what's going on in somebody's life that they're do- they, you know, that, that's causing them to do something that makes us mad. And if we do lay anger get angry or, or lash out at somebody, then we really should try and seek forgiveness as soon as we can. You know, it talks about don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. You don't want to let it go. You want to seek forgiveness. We, we don't want to hold on to anger either because what happens when you hold on to anger? It just sits there and it just festers and builds up in you. So you want to seek reconciliation as quickly as you can. You want to let it go. If you don't do that, then that gives the devil a foothold. It gives him an opportunity to exert his influence. When we let that anger build up, a lot of times you just need that one little thing to set you off, and and Satan can maneuver something to be that thing. As Wearsby writes, Satan hates God and God's people. And when he finds a believer with the sparks of anger in his heart, he fans those sparks, adds fuel to the fire, and does a great deal of damage to God's people and God's church. Now, the next admonition is about stealing. Verse 28, it says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. And so if you steal, don't steal. It's bad. Again, it's one of the original Ten Commandments, right? They were lying. But it's not just Paul telling people not to steal, but instead they must work. Do something useful with your hands so that they could share with those who are in need. You know, I'm sure that there are maybe some fathers in here who are like, I wish my son would figure that out, you know. I'm sure my dad was that way, but when I was living at home, he was just like, I really wish he would go do something. They're back now, too. (laughs) But I don't live there anymore. So, So, but instead, like, you know, you got to replace it. You can't just do the negative part. We'll talk about this in a minute, too. But you got to replace it with something positive. You know, so rather than just not stealing, work. And why are you working? Like, there's something like Paul. Paul was a worker. He described, he's described as a tip maker in Acts 18. And in his letter to Thessalonians, Paul instructed them to work with their hands as he did. 
so that they wouldn't be a burden to others, but they could also share with those who are in need. And so they're taking care of your, you're taking care of your own needs, but you're also sharing with people who are in need. And that's still something we can latch on to today. We can work hard, we, but we can, and we can do something useful, not just for us, but for others as well. Like that's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to, rather than steal, rather than being lazy or anything like that, we are, we're working hard and we're doing it in order that, you know, we can take care of ourselves and others. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Did I skip one? I skipped one, didn't I? I did, I did. Verse 29. Okay, we'll get to verse 30 here in a second. Don't let it, uh, we don't want to skip this one. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It's kind of similar to not stealing, just the way that he's framed it here. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. So the word unwholesome here, it's used also in the Greek to describe like a spoiled fish or rotten fruit. So that's a good mental image for, you know, stuff coming out of your mouth there. <laughs> that's bad. Um, and and the, the most likely thing that this is talking about are words that are tearing others down. Because there's never a good reason to be destructive of others in your words, ever. Especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, we should speak only what's helpful for building each other up in their needs. It benefits those who listen to us. I mean, if we're just tearing each other down, what kind of a witness is that for others? The benefit is... The, the word benefit, it's the same word in Greek that is used to translate grace. It's giving grace to those who listen. If you're talking with somebody and you're not giving them grace and how you speak with them, stop. Just stop. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down, even if you're just joking. Like, I can fall into that where, you know, if, you're com- if I'm comfortable with you, I may joke about it. And that's, that's not great. I got to work on that too. But when you speak, encourage and build, giving grace. Now we get to verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. All of these things that Paul's telling his readers not to do, they're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. And as we read in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is our seal to mark our salvation as he lives in us and indwells us. If we're consistently or intentionally doing these things that Paul is saying not to do, then that's not really matching up with how the Spirit is trying to lead us. God is working to sanctify us in his Spirit, to make us more like Jesus, more like Christ. But when we live contrary to the Spirit, what does that do? It's going to grieve the Holy Spirit. He knows that we're going against something that is better. We're not going toward him, but away. Now, there's one final contrast Paul describes in chapter 4, and that's first what Christians should get rid of in verse 31, where he says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. We got to get rid of all of these things in our lives, for those are just going to simply keep driving us into sin. We can't just be rid of them, though. We've got to replace them with something better. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. 
forgiving each other just as in Christ forgave you. So instead of bitterness and rage and anger, we should be kind and compassionate to one another. And we forgive. And we forgive easily. Sometimes that's difficult because the offense gets pretty big. But why should we do this? It's because, like Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. We forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We have been forgiven much. We were all against God at some point in our lives, even though we may not remember it because we were really young when we came to know Jesus. But at some point, but even for those people, there's probably been a time in your life where you're just like, you know what, I'm not going to do what God says today. Through his grace, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, as Christians, we have been forgiven our sins. We have been forgiven much. And does that not make you want to turn and forgive others? Like, what can they do to you that is worse than what you've done to God? And yet God has already forgiven you. A lot of times we just need the reminder of who we were before Jesus rescued us. But our goal is to be like Jesus, to be kind and compassionate, forgiving to one another. And it's not easy. It's not easy. It's something we got to do every day. Like he's saying, you got to take off the old. That old way of sin, that's dead to us. We are changed. We're renewed in our mind by God's grace. And then we put on the new. We be like God in holiness and righteousness. And we do that every single day. We take up our cross, die to ourself, but we live for God every day. And then you know what that's going to do? That's, that's going to get people to look at you a little bit different. Because people are not going to see you the way you used to be. They may look at you funny. They may be like, this guy... <laughs> This is not the guy I knew. Yeah, I, I know. You know, my, my, uh, my family can attest to this. And they're like, he would not be up here. <laughs> we were not anticipating Nick <laughs> preaching. <laughs> like, nobody ever thought that. And yet, by the grace of God, here I am. By God's grace, I am up here. And... The same is true for us. You may, you, you know, you're probably not going to be up here preaching, and that's okay. But you can live a life for the Lord out in the world. Because that's going to be far more important than what I do, quite honestly. I'm just here to encourage you. To tell you you're loved. God loves you. And to send you out into the world. To go show other people that. To, to have the Lord work through you to bring people to him. To have what we have. And, and when we can do that, this world will change. More people are going to be in the kingdom. Praise God. And I don't have a third thing, but those are two pretty awesome things. <laughs> Every time I do a list, that happens. <laughs>
Let me pray with you as we close out. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this word in Paul's letter that we can so just take right out of the first century and put it right into the 21st. Help us not to live as we used to live, but to live like you want us to, like you're leading us to live, Lord, because we know that that's going to be appealing to others. We know that that you will draw people to you through us. And, you know, it's not to give us some sense of importance or entitlement or anything like that. It's because we know we have been saved. And we know the cost of that salvation in the life of your son, Jesus, who went to a cross and died so that we could come home. Father, we're so thankful. We come to a point in our service where we remember that sacrifice that was made on the cross at our time of communion. And we come around the table and and we thank you for that. Lord, I just pray your blessing over us as we go through our week. that, That, you know, Sunday isn't just here to be what we do on Sunday morning, but it's is to give us a recharge, give refuel us for the rest of the week so that we can go out and be a shining light for your kingdom, Lord. And we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you so much, Lord. Help us to take off the old, to be renewed in our minds and our hearts and to put on the new every day to live in holiness. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.